Hello, welcome everybody. As you can see, I am not daily. I am Sophie, and this is going to be the edition of me <laughs> directing the podcast. And I am now with Thomas Prince. Hello. And with uh, Professor Marie Ceresi. Good morning. <laughs> so congratulations on your inauguration speech slash lecture. It was um, very, very interesting. Thank you. So will anything change now in like your work or like your life? <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> no, but it was it was um, a good opportunity for me to say things that I wanted to say for years. And um, you know, usually I'm writing scientific papers, and uh, the things that I said yesterday are things that you cannot put in a scientific paper. You do write them once you have fully study them and fully uh, demonstrated your point. Most of what I said yesterday is my vision for the future, so the things that needs to be developed. And um, so I was glad to have this opportunity to uh, let it down, to put it there for um, hopefully for students to pick it up and uh, um, help uh, this vision to become a reality. So um, usually we do start with some rapid fire questions. So I'd like to move, but to know you a little bit better as well. So um, do you prefer a campsite or a hotel? Hotel. Do you prefer a beach or a forest? Beach. I love the beach. <laughs> uh, what's your favorite food? A lot. I like <laughs> to... Uh, I think food is... Uh, I like it very much. <laughs> Do you like to cook or to eat? Uh, I think I like... Uh, I'm very good at eating. <laughs> 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 I like to eat with people. I like the social aspect of food. Um, I have to say, for the past years, I also got a little bit, but just a little bit, into cooking, because it helps me to relax, indeed, after a day of work. Do you have any sort of, I know you are French, so do you have like, it's French cuisine your favorite type of, or do you also have other favorites? No, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm not, uh, I'm not at that level yet. I'm trying to um, healthy uh, feed in a healthy way uh, my family. And, uh, and I, so that's, no, that's, I am at a very simple way, a step uh, level when it comes to cooking. Me too. Me too. <laughs> uh, I like to warm up my noodles. Yeah. <laughs> I boil some water. I boil That them. is it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, book or movie? Uh, most of the time, books. And but do you I have like a favorite genre or a very, like a specific book that you have read over and over again? Well, I do things that uh, one of the books I mentioned yesterday in my uh, lecture, um, this book by uh, Edgar Morin, who is a French philosopher, and the title of this book is Seven Lessons, Seven Complex Lessons for the Future of Education. I think I've, over the past uh, 20 years, I think I read this book, I don't know how many times. What makes it <coughs> so good? <laughs> Well, A, um, 
It's about education, and I'm here because I strongly believe in education. I think it's uh, it's the beginning of everything. B, it's uh, it's a vision. It's a very high level vision about education. That is not it's well to my knowledge. Uh, it's not very often that uh, we c- I I haven't come across so many other. Literature piece where I could uh, actually um, try to reflect at a very high level what needs to be taught. Very high level means very far away from content, but very much on the on the theoretical level. Um, and see, well, it's uh, it it's he was mandated by the UNESCO to do that by the end of the but the early nineties uh, and. Um, he he came to I think he worked with thirteen or fourteen different uh, scholars in different countries all over the world, including Brazil and uh, South America, uh, Argentina, etc. Um, so it's also um, um, yeah, it's there is some kind of universalism uh, behind th- this vision. It's not only one person. So I think these these are the reasons why uh, I find it uh, extremely useful. Mm. And by the way, it's okay. Of course, originally he wrote it in French, but it's uh, in English, and it's it's open line. So if you type UNESCO Morin M O R I N Seven Lessons f- for Future Education, you will find it. That's incredible. Is there anything in the book that you Try to incorporate into your own lessons. Uh, it's um, a lot of what I've said yesterday. Actually, I was very influenced by that book. For instance, yesterday I insisted on the fact that I believe I like to see us as as multi-layered, as multi-layered as a tulip bulb. I use this uh, tulip bulb metaphor. Um, saying that uh, this multi-layered um, identity, if we, we look at it that in as a multi- as a multi-layered identity, if we look at it in that way, with our external envelope signaling who we are as individuals, and then deeper inside our language, manners, behaviors, the things that we we learn from family, society, the things that are actually imposed on us, but also even deeper in us, our physiology, anatomy, and deeper, 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 the things that connects all of us, not only all humans, but also all humans with all other living beings on planet Earth. Um, I, I find it very useful because it shows all what we have in common with everything. Um, and actually, uh, Edgar Morin, in his book, is one of the seven lessons that he thinks needs to be taught is um, the human condition. And for him, this he, he sees humans. Uh, he likes to emphasize the fact that we, we have uh, three levels in, uh, in us, the individual, the societal, and then we also need to see us as a species. And of course, my... Um, my multi-layered identity, which is a bit more complicated, a bit more detailed, is is very much is taking from from his three layers. 
A more casual question. <laughs> do you have pets? Yes, of course. What pets do you have? So currently I have one dog and one cat. What are the names? Ah, uh, the dog is Rocky. Oh. Like the like the boxer? Yes. Because <laughs> it's a Boston Terrier, so it's a small but very bulky and uh, energetic uh, dog. And uh, it's he's a lot of fun and we love him uh, in our family. That's nice. And the cat? The Can cat uh, the cat is named Ronen. And I know it does not mean anything, but it's a name that was given by my daughter when she was probably uh, three years old or something like that. Uh, and I'm afraid it comes from the name of our previous landowner here in the Netherlands, who was called, when it was still called, Ron. And uh, I don't know, so she came up with that name, Ron N. I love it's it. Amazing. It's such it's such a good name as well. Yeah. Reminds me of Ron from Harry Potter. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is it is it an orange Sorry. cat? No. Uh. No. No. Uh. Unfortunately, it's very <laughs> gray. <laughs> are you are you pro the idea of bringing your pets to work? Yes, Ooh. absolutely. Absolutely. Did you see me doing that already? Of course. Yeah. yeah that's oh. why I, that's why I ask. Is yes. Thing? Well, I think it 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 we need to talk about it. Um, because there are several studies who are showing that having pets and especially dogs in the workplace helps people to settle down. And especially when you need to have a difficult conversation, and this happens all the time in a professional uh, setting, having a dog around just ground people. People feel more relaxed. And there are cultures where people are doing that. For instance, if you go to Germany, in Germany, it's it's very easy. And there are many places where people are taking their dogs. And I, s myself, when I was in Germany uh, as a young postdoc, I saw all of those dogs in the workplace. And at first I was surprised. That was completely new to me. And then I also understood about all of those studies, uh, real, uh, accurate scientific studies showing that indeed, those dogs are helping us. Did you grow up with pets? Yes. Is that also the reason why you agree with this so much? Or is it because scientific paper says it? The question behind it is more, do you consciously experience being relaxed or when your animal's around? Or do you think it's the truth because science says so? No, you're right. That's a very good point, Daily. You nail it. Um, of course, I feel that because I was uh, raised with pets everywhere. Uh, so for me, it comes naturally. And of course, what I'm say, what I'm doing here is that I'm using the authoritarian, authoritarian, yes, authoritarian yeah. <coughs> argument um, to back up what I'm saying, because I am a woman, and um, well, it helps to. Uh, back up your own feelings with and arguments with with other uh, with the ones of uh, other people especially if they are published in good journals and in good scientific journals makes your voice a little bit louder yeah, in yeah. a crowded room is that something you experience as a woman as well sophie yes most of the time i have to uh, especially being a chair this year something that i've had to learn a lot about I feel very sorry that that is what you need to do to be heard that's, that's very... Yeah. It needs to be done. 
Yeah. We need to, we need to do it in over, in order to overcome it. Yes. And one day it would be it would be we nobody would have to do that anymore. Hopefully. Yeah. And because you feel in my opinion because you feel this sort of like like bothersome towards that I me and Marie and I have to do this. It's sort of like the path towards change because the more people feel uncomfortable is the way that people like things change in wow. my opinion from what I've seen. And you two are setting very strong examples as well for um, the future. At least it was very inspiring looking in the room and seeing the number of women in gowns growing during your lecture. Yes, it's not easy every day. But it's I'm sure it's easier than what it used to be. And when it comes to about the diversity, it's not only about women, it's about everything. Um, so, of course, me, uh, I, uh, I'm talking about uh, women because I am a woman and I experience it. And uh, the more you go in academia um, nowadays, um, you, you, when you are reaching the very high, the highest level, it's 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 still not easy. But I know from a, I know because I've heard um, that in the past, 30, 40 years ago, fifty years ago, it was just unbelievable. I have a, we have an old colleague here, who is emeritus professor. She was a professor in the in the eighties, and. Uh, she ended up in meetings at uh, Central University where people would just uh, the, the speech in the beginning of the meeting, everyone would introduce himself or herself themselves. And uh, the, the speech uh, would come to her and uh, the next person after her would start speaking. So uh, providing her from speaking and completely ignoring her voice in the meeting. So fortunately, we are in a much better situation today but there is there is still things to be to be done and yeah. it's important to talk about it why i'm talking about it because it's a reality and uh, people needs to know everybody needs to know because for now i have students for instance who when things happen but i mean things sexist things happens to me for instance they are completely shocked they don't understand um, so I believe that it's also my role to explain to them what's happening. Because they are really speechless and they don't understand. And when you start understanding, then the, it's easier to live with things. Because there are always several sides uh, to the same problem, several perspectives. And when you start understanding the perspective of the other, including the perspective of the person who is the aggressor, well, you, you better understand everything. And, and then your emotions can calm down. Um, you understand from where the person is coming from. And usually all of that is completely unconscious. Um, so talking about it, sharing about it helps to make it easier for everybody. Um, we know that you've traveled and done research in many different places like France, um, South Africa, Germany, America, and of course the Netherlands now. But do you travel anywhere to just relax? Um, anywhere is actually the right uh, word. Bec I love to travel. I love it. 
but I can also just travel 10, 10k and and discover something new and be very happy. And um, I have to say today I'm I'm experiencing this uh, this uh, those um, how do they call it this uh, shame of flying. Uh, so I have I have difficulties. Um, becomes much more difficult for me to uh, to travel far away for for pleasure for leisure mm -hmm. uh, because I feel that I need to lower down my uh, carbon imprint. So I would rather walk to the beach, <laughs> yeah, um, than uh, go too far away. The beauty is you'll find places very close to you that are be beautiful and wonderful and relaxing like the beach like the beach we're so fortunate to have a beach around <laughs> yeah here. Oh, there's so many things around line that there are yeah light is a yeah. yeah yes it's a beautiful city with beautiful architecture lots of beauty uh in it natural mm. beauty uh, but also uh main men constructed uh, yeah beauty yeah. i especially think that light is so pretty at night with all the oh, lights and the in canals summer? In the summer at night where you can just go outside and it's not freezing cold. The best part about light is, which I never do because when you live here you never explore, and uh, uh, it's to walk around and find those cute little bistros and cafes and places that are hidden away. Yeah. I agree. I feel very privileged to live here. Yeah. Shall I ask it? Yeah, you can ask. <coughs> it's going to be my podcast again. <laughs> how, how did you experience Leiden when you first got here? Well, first, that the first experience with me f was indeed the job interview. My daughter at the time was three months old, and I had uh, it was not easy to give birth. So for more than a month, I could not move basically. Um, so I can tell you when I came here with a daughter, three months old, but still extremely happy to come here. And of I was at that time I w I've been living in France for. Uh, three no four years i think so i completely forgot everything about english um so i came here with a baby breastfeeding and then i did this interview they interviewed seven other young scholars and then uh, so a few days afterwards um no first i went out of the interview i enjoyed the interview a few days after call me back and say we want to give you the job so that was the first thing. And I was like, wow. Because of course they were, I was like, wow, they are able to hire a woman from uh, a foreign country who does not speak Dutch. I was like, I was impressed, I have to say. Mm. And I was also, uh, um, of course, very happy by this ability just uh, to go behind the first layer and go deeper and understand that, yes, indeed, I had something to say. And that I could uh, serve and help uh, this, uh, the faculty. And the job you were applying for is the associate professor position, or was it already the assistant professor? Alors, so the, 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 the first level in the, in the there are three levels here for professors. The first one is assistant. So first you become an assistant, then you go into associate. Then you go into full. So when I came here, I came on an assistant professor job. And I even came on a contract position. And, um, 
and the well one of, of the other beauty of the Dutch system to which I'm very grateful is that actually in, in 2018 um, a committee decided to um, take me from my uh, to give me a full professor position so for me to go from a system to full without stopping in between and uh, of course there are many reasons for that um, one of the reasons was that I was already probably I think at the level of associate and that was because I did spend five years out of academia I was leading uh, commercial archaeology and so of course with uh, it's my uh, my career has been uh, has been uh, not a straight line but uh, I've been uh, stretching in between uh, really uh, pure uh, research and pure what I would say applied archaeology meaning commercial archaeology so um, so of course when I was doing uh, commercial archaeology I I I I, I was not uh, building my my academic uh, uh, CV where I was yet I was gaining experience um, so that's also explained why I think when I came here I took this, this job which was assistant um, and and then why I was uh, proposed for this pool professor uh, position. Um, but at the same time, I know that, for instance, this is something that I think would never have happened in France, for instance, or in another country. Um, so I'm, I, I was, again, very impressed by the system. And I have to say, I could not believe it until, until I saw my face on the screens here at the faculty announcing the promotion. Mm. Would you recommend to our listeners that they also take a... <coughs> Uh, they go from research and applied, and that they see the difference. Yes. Um, no, it's a very good question. I don't know if I would recommend it because I believe I strongly believe that everybody needs to find uh, um, their path. And uh, and I the only thing I believe is that you need to go for what you really want, and what you really like. And me at the time, I was offered, not offered, but I was really pushed to go into a CNRS position in France. And I pissed off people because I, de I declined to go to the final interview, for instance. And there were, there were reasons for that. I had very good reasons to do that. First one being that I did not really see myself in that type of uh, research structure. Um, but of course that was meant, it was thought to be the most prestigious one. But my gut feeling was telling me that that was not for me. Meanwhile, at that time, uh, those people from uh, INRAP in France, so this is one of the biggest uh, commercial archaeology uh, company uh, in Europe and in the world actually, they came to me and they said, you can really make a difference and we know you can make a difference because so and so. And they were right. And not only that, but I believe, and I strongly uh, believe at the time, still believe today, that fieldwork is key for our discipline because everything starts with fieldwork. So, of course, I was also very happy. For me, it was more prestigious to contribute to uncover sites and protect sites um, than get prestige, so called, uh, sought to be. Uh, um, by 
many others thought to be more prestigious position in a, in a pure CNRS uh, research position in France. So go with your own um, feelings. How exactly did you end up studying and going into archaeology? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, again, it came a bit as a surprise. And I think it is mostly thanks to uh, some professors that I had in the past. Because when I came into university, I wanted to become a teacher in uh, natural sciences. Already it was a bit of a, of a struggle because I came from mathematics and physics at high school. So they wanted me, it was more natural, supposedly, for me to continue with mathematics and physics. But no, I wanted to do biology. Um, and then at uh, the license, uh, yes, uh, bachelor, sorry, uh, third year, I had this professor called Bernard van der Mersch, who was uh, stunning. Then I was like, wow, this is, this is super interesting what he's talking about, this, this human evolution thing. And also at, this, at the same moment, there was also something very practical, is that to become a, a teacher at high school of biology in France at that time, it was extremely competitive. Um, there was a competition and uh, the success rate was 8%. I remember it was the same success rate as the success rate to uh, gain the competition to become a professor of Japanese. <laughs> in France. So wow. I was like, because for me, in my mind, from the world I was coming from, research was something extremely difficult and only something for very s smart, I thought at the time, uh, people, very gifted people. And I thought that was not, uh, that was not who I was. Well, and then the combination of those two things, I said, okay, well, it seems that it's extremely difficult to become a professor at high school for biology. So maybe research is not is not no not much more difficult than winning a competition where you only have eight percent of the people applying who, who who gain the position. So, and so then I just I just uh, did a master um, in in um, in human evolution and prehistoric archaeology, just to give it a try, and then. At the end of the uh, research master, I said, okay, I'm going to try to get a grant, to get a PhD grant. If I get a PhD grant, fantastic. If I don't get it, I'm going to do something else. And I got the PhD grant. Wow. Then I continue. Then after the PhD, I said exactly the same thing. Uh, if I get a postdoc grant, I continue. And I got several postdoc grants and uh, this is how am I here today me personally i am always afraid to get uh denied so when mm. i apply for something um i i don't get it and i'm gonna i don't know what the exact fear is behind it mm -hmm. but i'm afraid i'm not gonna get it did you ever experience that when applying never mm -hmm. okay. it's very uh, but i understand it actually you know what i think doing this oracy I was afraid, probably for one of the first time in my life. How did you deal with that? Because I was there and I think you did very well. Yeah. Um, but how did you, I guess, calm your nerves? How did you? No, 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 no. Through? It's not about the event itself. It's uh, many years before working on the thing. Mm. 
And I think it took me many years to do it. Uh, okay, of course, there was Corona in between and I'm, and of Corona was something. And you don't want to do it in front of an empty room. Um, but there was also the other reason was that I was afraid. And I think I was afraid because for the first time I realized that uh, I think there was more to it than me and my knowledge and what I could share with people. So I lost confidence a bit because being afraid, I believe, comes from the fact that you lack confidence. Um, the other day I was listening to a talk show uh, with Christine Lagarde. Uh, with this French woman with the head of the, uh, what is it, uh, en français, it's a FME, um, I don't remember. Okay, uh, she was on a talk show on the NPO, the college talk, talk show. Uh, so she sees this, she's at the international level, very powerful woman. Um, and uh, one of the young students asked her what kind of, what qualities do you need to succeed at the level you are? She thought for about she thought about it for like five seconds and then she answered love. And you cannot see you cannot say that she's kind of hippie lady from the seventies. No, not at all. She's she's uh, leading this uh, bank uh, thing. Um, what did she say that? She explained a bit. Um, it's because with love, whatever type of love it is, comes confidence. We all know that when we are in love, you just you would just go. You would just uh, you are uh, invincible. We would say in France, you you are nobody can invincible. Invincible. Nobody can hurt you. You are just extremely strong. That's the same thing. Um, you need confidence to have confidence. You need love, and uh, and I think it's it's also a life history situation. Um, it's 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 the love you receive from your um, from your partner, the love you receive from your friends, um, from your family, the love you received when you were a kid. Um, it's it's a life history thing that helps you to build and become strong um, and personally I can also see uh, I'm getting older and older of course and um, in the past years for instance the relationship with my own family was a little bit disintegrating also because of distance and everything um, and even if you are growing up and uh, becoming a uh, older and older you are always a small child who needs to talk with the family eh, and the mother and the father, if there is a mother or father or or close family, and it's extremely important in life. And I believe that is um, the, the stronger you receive from others, which also means the, uh, how much you give to others, um, the stronger you become because this gives you confidence, and then you fear it goes away. So you were talking about when you decided to get into uh, evolution and why Neanderthals specifically? A, because they are, because they disappeared, because they are no more with us today. B, because they, uh, 
where I was at the time as a student was uh, the scholars there in Bordeaux, in France, were indeed studying Neanderthals. And um, which is not surprising because this, the Neanderthals are the one for whom we have the, the most uh, um, the most uh, number of sites, the number of human remains. The best archaeological record we have for those time period is the one of Neanderthals. But I think for me, the most important aspect of it is that those people disappeared, physically speaking, and I'm fascinated by that by the fact that we are all today only one huge meta-population and that in the past it was different. Nowadays we have different, let's say, breeds of cats and dogs and stuff. Is it Was the human population comparable to that in the past or is it more... Um, species, like leopard and tiger? Indeed. Indeed. Different groups, different populations who were... Um, separated in space and indeed exchange uh, little genes um, and this is something that obviously changed between 60 and uh, 30,000 years ago uh, where there was a lot of uh, genetic exchanges and um, and I believe also uh, that's why we have this uh, we are this uh, um, we are this uh, homo uh, mosaicus, so like a mosaic of everything, because we are carrying genes from Neanderthals, but some of us are also carrying genes from Denisovians, those people who are living in the in Asia. Um, and so basically, our uh, so Homo sapiens did blend in with those uh, local people. So it we went from a time where there was little genetic interaction and probably little also cultural interactions between those different populations of humans located in different places in the world to a time where, well, it became global. Yeah, I saw it in class. I took, <laughs> I took the human evolution minor. And so when I was in that class, we learned about every aspect of it. We learned morphology, uh, wow. geographical location. And at one point, I remember one of my professors put up like sort of a map and that grew as much as like as we like evolved through time so oh. like started with obviously before lucy and australopithecus africanus and then it was just it boomed and we could see them everywhere and they all coexisted with one another like not all of them obviously but most of them did and it was really amazing to see and i was like wow i really did not know much about what our past looked like before this so Bizarre. it was really cool a little bit of a technical question because i'm not a biologist um but if they can interbreed and their species and the next of kin can also interbreed are they then a separate species <laughs> yeah it's a it's a technical question indeed and it's uh, very much discussed and my understanding of that is that uh, we are we are dropping those concepts right um, your research focuses on extinct human species. Um, in the Netherlands, not so much, but in other countries in Europe, the church is very important and ruling in, in certain things. And I know that the church says that these are all um, monkeys, that they are to test people's faith, or that they are uh, normal humans but with a disease. How, how do you see this? 
since science clearly says something else? Well, I think I uh, I sort of I understand from where they are coming from. I I think they want they think that to keep their uh, the privilege of 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 their status, uh, the people who are saying that uh, the status being um, within a specific group, within being within a religious group, they believe they need to uh, um, dismiss science. Uh, but I think they are wrong because I don't think they need to dismiss science and that science and religion are s two things completely different and that they fulfill different roles. And I'm coming from a, a, a Catholic family um, and um, there are, there are uh, even the Pope um, uh, in, in, in Rome is somebody who is uh, every Every other year, I think they organize uh, a meeting about human evolution. So um, they want to hear what science has to say, but it doesn't. Science does not um, dismiss religion. Religion has a completely different role as science. Of course, you could say, if you, if you look at it too literally, you would say that okay, me when I'm talking, me and my colleagues studying human evolution, we are providing us with a. a a narrative about our origins. Okay, that's one thing. And you may think that the Bible, for instance, is also providing an, you a narrative. But the meaning um, and the... Um, yes, the meaning of those two narratives, the, the, f the, the, the goal that each of those narratives are, are trying to reach by being established is completely different. In science, we just try to reconstruct the past and it's our job to try to improve our understanding. Uh, religion, I believe, have a completely different uh, role, um, in my view, to put people together um, and to improve our life um, because we are also spiritual uh, people. Um, so. I, I think we uh, one does not exclude the other one. Wow, I was thinking when you walked in here, you remind me of one of those Renaissance scientists, the, the you know the the old-fashioned European, um, beautiful uh, 1600s Renaissance scientists. But now that you said this, it sounds even more, because um, they were also very uh, church and science. Yeah. That changed an idea of yeah, and they they had the the most beautiful thing, and I can't remember who said it was that the more he learns, the the more he sees God's glory in the world. Yes, so Spinoza, for instance, the Dutch Spinoza, well known, well respected, well respected. really, <laughs> but really, I I mean, I haven't read too much, and I only for now I only read one French biography, uh, but it's just it's amazing, because it's amazing how. Uh, uh, how indeed he could um, deal both and respecting both his uh, spiritual views and the spiritual views of others and at the same time uh, be uh, ver also very clear about his own um, uh, science, basically. Mm -hmm. 
I am honored to have the same last name, but only with an E in the beginning. So beautiful. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, when I first came here, they told me, "Oh, are you related?" And I was like, "No, but it's but cool." <laughs> so, um, in our class, you did uh, tell us about your research and the um, research about Neanderthal DNA and. No, you're answering the question for her. What do you mean? Just okay. Just you do it. In science, you do it. I won't do it. And okay. in this class, uh, we had the assignment to describe our researches, uh, be they random researches or um, uh, uh, just to cut this out, uh, in three sentences. So now we would like to ask you: Could you describe <laughs> your research in three sentences? Yes. Well, I'm studying Neanderthals just before they disappeared. And I believe this is very important because all of those previous forms of humans did disappear and only and now we are only one. So I believe I want to understand what happened. Why we are the only one. And um, to do that, I uh, I'm fortunate enough to have a quite large team of students working on, on, on studying what happened during that time when the undertones disappeared. And one of the things I want to personally try to contribute is that I want to put together to improve the, the methodology. We have to recognize interactions and especially cultural interactions in the past. And this is extremely difficult. What do you mean by cultural interactions? Well, for now, we know that they, that late Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens did interbreed. So basically, they had sex together and they created offspring. And this is why we are still carrying Neanderthal DNA. But we have no idea of what happened in practice and if tho those um, if that was war or peace, basically. Um, because, of course, genes can be exchanged in, uh, in nice uh, circumstances, but also in very uh, bad uh, circumstances. And why is that important? It's because I strongly believe that we are first and above all what we make, what we think, And this is m above all the biological aspect. And uh, by the way, what we make, what we think, how we behave. So this is culture. Culture is something that we can uh, think about it. We can in some ways control it, even if I believe actually we don't really control because it's most of it is imposed on us. But at least we can reflect on it. Biology, our biology is a given. Who <laughs> we? It's very difficult to do anything about it, um, and it's it's something that we also need to realize. Uh, of course, is that at that time those people when they were having sex, um, um, they were not controlling and not deciding what kind of offspring they're gonna do, but they were controlling and deciding if they wanted to exchange knowledge, to exchange know-how with other people from other groups. Um, so that's in that sense, culture is, 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 
uh, is controlled. And this is what I want to, uh, I want to uh, develop ways to do that in the deep, deep past. I think a lot of people maybe that aren't in evolution would be surprised, probably surprised to learn how much culture Neanderthals and early Homo sapiens had. You said something about it in your speech, but what do you think? They, pe do people look down on early, early humans in archaeology? Yes. Yes. I think we, still, we are still living in this paradigm, but it's a societal paradigm where we have a tendency to think that because we are the last one, we are necessarily uh, smartest and strongest than the one who disappeared. And the problem is that uh, we function, we see this, we see things in that way only for us. So for instance, if I take uh, octopus, I like octopus, because they are very smart. Mm. But nobody would say that an octopus four million years ago was less smart than an octopus today. However, when it comes to humans, this is what we do, and we have a natural tendency to do that all the time. So I'm not... Uh, so of course, uh, things have changed a lot within the past four million years ago. But the thing I was arguing yesterday, and I, I'm going to continue to argue for the next 20 years, is that what changed the most is not maybe not our biology, but it is our culture. It's the thing that changed the most is uh, the fact that I am today using a smartphone. And even my uh, when I was a, a child, there were, there were no smartphone and the phone we had had a long curved string attached to it. Um, so that's that's uh, cultural evolution. And what I suspect, and uh, this really needs to be demonstrated, and studied in detail because I may I may be wrong, but I have good reason to think so. Is that, uh, and I'm not the first one to say so, um, that actually culture making things is the thing that actually also uh, changed our biology. You you say that humans are considering themselves smart to be smarter than previous humans. What is the definition you use of smartness or intelligence? Because that's a very vague concept, I think. Yes. And I intentionally uh, leave it vague because I really, I do not believe in it. I think it's, it's completely off. Um, and I think we really need to reflect on this and stop seeing us and putting us on a pedestal, stop seeing us as superior to anything else. We are differently adapted to the circumstances we are living in. We are differently adapted than every single of us, than, than other um, animals, than other living beings on planet Earth. But, um, but we are, if, if we stop seeing us as superior, then we can see us as being intertwined. And that's changed everything. Yeah. And also, one of the things I would like to research is how this come to be. Because if we go back to those Renaissance uh, thinkers, if you read Montaigne, um, y 
you will see that those people had, had a completely different point of view on the world. So they did indeed like others. Eh? I'm only using Montaigne because I'm French, I'm from Europe. Um, so they did see us intertwined, embedded in nature. And something happened, I believe, I think, afterwards, during the Enlightenment in Europe. For many reasons, we had, and it was useful, to start seeing us as superior. And remember that that was also the time Europeans started to colonize the rest of the world. So it was very good, very easy, very on purpose to, for themselves to be able to see themselves as superior to other people. Because they had to justify the fact that they were um, sort of better, better than everybody else. And <laughs> to, for what? Because they were colonizing other people. They were stealing the life of other people. They were stealing, taking the land of other people. So for them, it was useful, needed to see them as, as superior. Yeah. We learn it in, um, in human evolution, in the classes that I took. It's uh, mostly based on brain size. You assume that because, uh, let's say... Homo erectus had a bigger brain than the ones that came before. Then, by proxy, then they must be smarter. And then Homo sapiens, basically. But actually, it, we have absolutely no way of knowing. No. And it's really interesting point as well that yeah. we just learn it based on brain size, but yeah. we don't know. Yeah, and with that, you bring us to another talking topic because exactly what you explain now is an entire exposition in the Nemo in Amsterdam. Where, where you also have your own ancient DNA stand. Oh. I, I was there recently, um, and, and it was ve it's very impressive because you need to imagine it. It's in the top floor. The building is uh, um, diagonally built. Mm -hmm. That's a bad e description. Um, find, find a picture of the, of the building, and you'll understand. You walk up all the way, and everywhere's like kid science and... If I can explain it as kid science, it's very natural. And then in the top, you walk and you walk up the stairs and right in the middle is a very large picture of you. And I remember walking there and telling my girlfriend, like, oh, my God, that's my professor. <laughs> 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 how, how, did you, how did you end up there? Well, because they wanted, they needed a people like me to do the part on DNA and to talk about human evolution. And so they contacted me and um, we did the sh footage for, for that part. And then um, I also helped to find other people to do other footages uh, related to human evolution. And then they just, they needed the diversity. They needed to show, they wanted to show portrait of people um, including diversity. And I think that's simple. I was there. So they just said, okay, and on the top of that, could we shoot a few, a portrait of you? And I said, yes, sure, why not? And um, funny story is that I was high at fever the day they shoot it. And for now, I haven't seen it yet. But of course, and I'm going actually this weekend to uh, Nemo, to the museum. Uh, of course, again, I'm very, I'm very grateful 
I'm proud, of course, but I'm grateful because I found this fantastic that a Dutch institution just takes. Okay, it's not so far away, friends, but uh, it's already something. So a non-Dutch person who is not blonde, who does not have blue eyes, who is not long, neither elongated, um, and put this person in the middle of a, uh, with a, what is it, uh, five meters by three or four meters large uh, portrait. Yeah, easily. Yeah, and if you said that the whole <coughs> thing is sort of more for kids and like easy to understand, I feel like it's really cool if there's like a kid that is not blonde and doesn't have yeah. blue eyes. Like when they see someone who is like there and they see that it looks, th it, that looks like me and it's like, that representation is just like, wow. And they believe that they can get into that point in, in science. And it's really interesting. Yeah, I would even go as far as to say that it's inspiring. I personally is, think yeah. you are inspiring. I think your approach to things, your your presence at the moment, even though you live a very busy life, is very inspiring. And that actually brings me to a next question. Who inspires you? Today or in the past? Or whatever. Who made All the time. All the time. <coughs> Ooh, uh, many people. And it's very important. Um, well, currently, I have to say, I'm working closely with four of my three or other colleagues, professors from the Faculty of Archaeology. Um, and those meetings that we have are very inspiring. Uh, we talk about... Uh, yeah, we share ideas and, uh, um, and of course, um, when I arrived here, uh, soon after was nominated a female dean named Corinne Hoffman. And, um, and she's been very um, inspiring for me. I was just, I was also a bit, I was surprised. I was like, they are able to hire a female dean just unbelievable unseen for me before because before that I've been inspired by uh, lots of men um, beautiful men um, I had one PhD supervisor who in the beginning who was a female professor Paola Villa and then her career was um, came to an abrupt point and uh, um, and then I lost her as a supervisor. So the number of female in my um, in my um, work um, environment uh, above me at a higher level has been extremely little since the beginning. Um, so that's also why when I came here and I saw this woman female dean being nominated um, and extremely successful scientific uh, and from the scientific point of view i was amazed uh, amazed yeah for me it's a it's also a thing i understand your point because when i came here in chile it's really common to just have male professors so when i came here and i saw people like you for example and so like when i saw the professors list and it was just you and Kevin hoffman i was like wow that's really cool and here you're like surrounded by really good female researchers like in materials in zoology and osteoarchaeology so it's like really inspiring to have all these like female professors and i'm like yay 
That's one thing. But one thing I would like to say uh, is that for diversity, we need to go further than that. Yeah. Because uh, um, the people in this faculty, including the students, I'm afraid, do not look like... When I go to Rotterdam, or, uh, I mean, the, 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 the people do not like the same, do not look like the same. Uh, so I, so there is a, why is that? Why is that? Why is it that the education system, university system, does not allow to have the same type of population you have outside the university uh, than walking inside the you? Street, yeah. yeah, walking the streets and within the university. The education needs to be for everybody, needs to be accessible. Diversity is extremely powerful because when we are, um, when we need to face uh, challenges, and we're gonna have a lot, you're gonna have a lot to face in the future. The more the diversity, the more diverse the point of view are, the more diverse the perspective is. If you are able to listen to this diversity of perspective, the better you're gonna come with a solution that suits everybody. And the more refined your solution will be. So this is where the power of diversity is. Uh, not only it's to make things fair, fair for people, but it's also because it's just simply better. It's more powerful. You come up with better solution if you are not thinking alike. If everybody in the room or more than 70% of the people in the room do think in the same way, with the same perspective, because they come from the same background, then you are, you would never find those refined solutions. Do you have any specific like dream research and what like what would it be if you could just have all the grants in the world and <laughs> go anywhere you want? Yeah, I would like to figure out how much um, culture, so making artifacts, how much this is something that created, that biologically created us. And uh, I would like to better understand when did that started? If this is a recent thing in human evolution, let's say, um, yeah, Homo sapiens, or if this is a thing that already started four million years ago with uh, ancestors to Homo habilis. Um, this is what I would like to... And is it like artifacts, like not only tools, but also like art, art and sort of like that, dre I don't know, dress? We're not Homo sapiens the artists in, in that sense? Yes, Homo sapiens is the one for whom, with whom we start to have preserved art, but not in the beginning. So it's not like every single Homo sapiens had uh, preserved art, and um, it's preserved, it's what preserved. So we also have this problem is that we are not able yet to reconstruct, I don't know. Leaves. Yes. or. Uh, 70%, 80% of the of the record is gone. Yeah. Do you where do you see yourself in 20 years? I know in your speech you said that you would be given your final talk when like in your final lecture, but where exactly do you see yourself in like 20 years do you see yourself still doing research or what's in the future for you? Hopefully continue to lead large teams. Because this is what I like to do that. I love to uh, work with people to support them, to give their best, find the best, help them to find the, 
how best they can contribute with their own personality, their own perspective, their own way of seeing things. And uh, often it's not uh, easy for me, it's challenging, because usually they have different uh, views. Uh, but it's also, uh, um, at the end of the day, above all, it's very rewarding. And I think we can do a lot. And uh, I have the energy to do a lot, especially when I am surrounded by people. And uh, so this is where I would like to see myself in 20 years, so that this, this teamwork do continue. Like it. So now you have the opportunity to promote any anything, anything. you, you world like. peace. What puppies. is something we should do or read or see before we die? Yes, I on the 14th of July we will have a session at the ease of European Science Open Forum, one of the largest multidisciplinary scientific meetings that is happening this year in Leiden. And on the 14th of July, we will have a session there to discuss how we can, um, the, the problems, the issues with a Western perspective on human history. And we have beautiful panel members. I think the discussion is going to be extremely interesting. We hope it will be a, a start of something here in Leiden and in the Netherlands. And I encourage you to come to attend. If you are a student, there is a cost I think it's 50 euros, maybe it's less than that, I don't remember uh, yet. So it's it's a bit costly, but then you can uh, attend the entire meeting either in person if you are living in Leiden or you can watch our session online. Thank you very much Thank for you. this and doing this with us. Thank you, Thomas, for being here. Always Thank you, Bailey, for allowing me to do this. <laughs> and yes. I hope you have a nice day too. Thank you. And a nice holiday. And a nice holiday, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. It was an honor. It yeah. really was a pleasure. <laughs> <laughs>